the last message or the last study in a series of studies that we have been engaged in for a number of weeks now, discovering our spiritual gifts. And we want this evening to think about the gift of mercy, the gift of mercy. And uh, let's begin reading in verse 6, and we'll read down to verse 8 of Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministry, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Well, we are again speaking tonight about mercy. We spoke about mercy, of course, on Sunday evening in our gospel meeting, speaking about how God is rich in mercy. And uh, when we speak about mercy, we're talking about a spiritual endowment whereby an individual has the ability to manifest practical, compassionate, cheerful love toward anyone who is suffering in the body of Christ. Now, the Greek word that is used to describe or to define the gift of mercy signifies a feeling of sympathy with the misery of another, especially when accompanied by a merciful act. So the term can mean to pity someone, to commiserate with them, to have compassion upon them, to show gracious favor towards them. The gift is really directed or primarily directed toward the saint who is in any distress, to the outcast, to the poor, to the underprivileged, to those who are ill, to the deprived, to the mental, mentally and physically disabled, to those who are unlovely, to those who are shut in, uh, to the hungering, to the addicted, to the morally weak, to anyone anywhere who suffers in any way uh, from moral, mental, physical or spiritual weakness. That's the kind of person that a merciful individual will minister to. You know, if you've been around churches any length of time, you know, inevitably you'll find that, you will have found along the way, that the churches often attract some people who are outcasts, who would not fit well socially into a worldly setting. They wouldn't be people who would be well received, for example, down at the pub or, uh, you know, at a football club or some other place uh, of worldly amusement or whatever. And they, they're drawn to the church and, and you meet these, uh, these dear souls and you think, well, what is it that brings them to the church? Well, very often it's the merciful. It's they find in, in the church someone who will give them a sympathetic ear, uh, someone who will give them time of day, someone who will be glad to share with them and to, uh, and to be involved in their life and to listen to their struggles. And so when the world cuts such people off, uh, the church of God takes such people in. Now, of course, every Christian is called upon to exercise mercy. Mercy is a fruit of the Spirit. And so all of us should be merciful. But those with the gift of mercy make compassion their lifestyle. 
It defines them. When you think about that person, you'll think, well, there's a person who's very compassionate. Here's the person who's very caring. Here's someone who is a sympathetic ear, uh, someone who makes me feel at ease and I, I feel I can speak to. Romans 12 and 8 says that this gift should be exercised with cheerfulness. Now, we've come across that word before when we looked at the gift of giving. In uh, 2 Corinthians 9 and 7, it says that God loveth a cheerful giver. And it's the same Greek word, same idea. It's the idea of hilarity. We talked about how a giver gives with hilarity. He rejoices in it. He joys in it. It brings satisfaction to him. The same thing is true in this gift. A person who exercises the gift of mercy finds great satisfaction in it. They enjoy it. They, they find their joy in reaching out to those who are hurting and those who are distressed. Now, the gift of mercy is not passive. It's not just feeling sorry for somebody. It's an active gift. It doesn't just simply say, listen, I'm sorry. But rather, its sorrow is evidenced by action. So a merciful person goes, on, goes beyond just simply saying, well, you know, I feel your pain, to actually saying, well, how can I help ease your pain? What can I do to minister to you? Uh, how best can I serve you in this time of difficulty uh, or struggle? So they don't say, well, if there's anything I can do, you know, sometimes we say that. If there's anything I can do, let me know. And I think we all mean that when we say it. But a, a merciful person doesn't say, if there's anything I can do, let me know. He, he identifies what needs to be done, and he does it, because he knows that it will minister to the one on the receiving end. So I want to think, first of all, as we've been doing, about some of the characteristics of this gift, and then we'll look at a biblical character who uh, expresses those gift, that gift or who manifests that gift. So when we think about the characteristics of the gift of mercy, the first thing I'd say to you is that a person who has this gift has a spirit of genuine love. They really love others. They really have the love of Christ in their heart. You know, they, and, they, and they're very open people. They tend to wear their sleeves on their hearts. They'll tell you, you know, if you're feeling bad, they'll tell you about a time that they felt bad. If you're going through a trial, they'll tell you about a time they went through a similar trial. They'll share their life with you. They're very loving. They're very caring. They're a very concerned person or people. And so those with mercy, as a consequence of that loving response to the needs of others, well, they tend to create deep friendships, strong bonds with other people uh, in which there's a mutual uh, commitment. So they're not the kind of people, you know, who would just go in for superficial acquaintances. They want proper friendships. They want to be your friend. Uh, they're unlikely to have a lot of acquaintances. You know, if you're on social media, you'll know what I mean by that. You have, you know, I don't know how many so-called Facebook friends I have. I think I've probably got about 1,300 or something. Uh, but, you know, I guarantee you, if I should pass away, that all 1,300 of those people will not come to the service. <laughs> because for most of them, I'm just an acquaintance. I, you know, it's just somebody that they know of. They don't really know me. They're not a friend of mine. And a, and a person who's merciful, you know, doesn't really uh, have... Have a, have that kind of relationship with people. He doesn't. He doesn't care to have acquaintances. He wants to have friendships. Uh, he doesn't want to have casual relationships. Uh, so he's more likely to have, or she's more likely to have, one or two really close friends 
than to have a broad scope of friends. They like to share themselves. They like to give of themselves. They, uh, ha- they uh, like to uh, open up, as I say, share their lives when their concerns uh, with their friends. Now, if you're thinking, well, this merciful person sounds delightful, you may be tempted to say, well, this is my gift because it sounds delightful and I'm delightful. <laughs> but, uh, but if you're thinking to yourself, well, this is a delightful gift and whoever has it must be a delightful person, think again. Because a merciful person isn't necessarily all sweetness and light. Okay, um, They're not a pushover by any, any stretch. Sometimes, actually, they can be extraordinarily harsh, especially when they come to the defense of their friends. If they feel like someone they love is under attack, they will come to their defense with a ferocity that might surprise you. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't think they're just sitting there all the time, you know, in a little fluffy world in which, you know, everything's candy floss and, and kindness. Uh, it's not that way at all. Uh, they tend to take things personally. So if they perceive that you have in some way attacked someone close to them, they react as though they were personally involved and they respond accordingly. So in protecting their friends, they are really subconsciously protecting themselves as well as their friendship. Um, They're more concerned about spiritual joy or emotional distress than physical needs. So, you know, whilst they want to minister to those who have physical needs, they're primarily uh, ministering to their physical needs in order to alleviate uh, an emotional or a spiritual uh, distress. So, uh, merciful people come into their own during times of tragedy, during times of emotional drama and trauma. Uh, They're good with people when people suffer perhaps a, a marital breakdown or there's a bereavement in the home, uh, or a very severe illness of some kind, they're very good. Those are the kind of people that will come alongside you and be a blessing to you. They tend to attract people who have spiritual and emotional distress. And that's what I say. Sometimes the church brings in people that society would not welcome, or society would not you know, um, pref- we'd prefer not to have around them. Uh, so the, the, the merciful person tends to be a person who has a good shoulder to cry on. Do you know like somebody like that? You know, if you really want to go and, and tell somebody your woes, you know, tell somebody you're having a bad day, is there somebody comes to your mind, is there somebody you think, I'll not tell them because they don't care? <laughs> or is there somebody you think, you know what, that's who I would tell I would tell so-and-so because they will listen to my troubles. It's likely that person is a merciful person. They're the kind of person that people look to naturally for sympathy. Unlike the prophet. The prophet is not really sympathetic at all. He's at the other end of the spectrum. Merciful people may appear insecure because they have the need to measure acceptance by physical closeness and quality time together. So, you know, they're not the kind of person that's happy uh, just to shake your hand and go uh, and just to know you from a distance. They want to know you. They want to, they want to have a closeness with you. And so if attention isn't given in friendship, well, they end up feeling personally rejected. Like, well, he doesn't want to know me. She doesn't want to know me. And they, and they look for someone else. The merciful person tends to avoid decisions and are rarely very firm about anything unless the firmness serves to alleviate greater hurts. So they react adversely perhaps to decision making for fear that their decisions may cause 
hurt or hardship to another, but they, they will be, you know, they'll be slow to perhaps sanction uh, the disciplinary removal of a member or of someone from church membership, for example. So they might, a merciful person, and the Bible calls us to do that sometimes, a merciful person might think that's a terrible thing. And they would, they would be absolutely opposed to that in principle, even though Jesus in the scriptures teaches them. Uh, and then they have a tendency to be, now this is a strange one, they have a tendency to be attracted to people with the spiritual gift of prophecy. Now, why do you think that is? Well, you've heard the old saying, haven't you, that opposites, what, attract? Opposites attract. You know, um, if you're a person who talks a lot, it's likely that your spouse doesn't say very much at all. <laughs> if you're a person who larks about, it's likely your spouse is quite a serious-minded person. Uh, so opposites attract. And prophets and merciful people are opposites. And they will, they will be attracted one to another. So merciful people thrive on friendships generally, uh, but they will like, the, like prophets in particular because they can be assured when they're dealing with a prophet that they're dealing with someone who's concerned about truthfulness, who's going to tell you the truth no matter what. Uh, they'll, be, they'll, be, they'll, be, uh, they'll be attracted to the prophet because there'll be displays of loyalty in a prophet and a display of commitment by a prophet. Now, who's our Bible character tonight that we want to look at and think about in this respect? Well, I want to look tonight at one of the apostles, the Apostle John. And he shows the characteristic of the gift of mercy. Uh, Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, before we get there, I want to just make a, a, a little observation. As a merciful person, the Apostle John's primary focus is upon love. Uh, he starts out when he meets the Lord Jesus. He's, he's called a, one of the sons of thunder. Uh, you know, I love that name. He's a son of thunder. It almost sounds like one of those Marvel superheroes, doesn't it? You can almost imagine him, you know, with some kind of uh, red suit on and a, and a lightning strike down his chest and some kind of uh, tool in his hand that is his superhero weapon. He's a son of thunder. But when you get to the end of his ministry or you get to the point where the Lord Jesus has dealt with him and has begun to change him, he's no longer called the son of thunder. He becomes known as the apostle of love. He becomes known as the apostle of love. And when you look at his epistles, you'll realize, or his, his writings, both his epistles and his gospel, uh, you'll appreciate that he employs the word love more than any other disciple. In his gospel, the word love appears 57 times. Now you compare that with the other gospel writers. Matthew speaks of love just 10 times. Mark speaks of love six times. Luke mentions love three times. The apostle James in his epistle mentions love three times. But John references love 57 times. So you can see there's a far greater emphasis upon love from John's perspective than there is from the other apostles. So John had the ability of the merciful to express genuine love. I want you to go with me, not to John's writing, but to Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 3, because I want to get a little insight into, uh, into this. Remember, you know, we're thinking here about uh, mercy. We're thinking here about mercy even as an attribute of God, as, an, as a characteristic of godliness. 
And uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 3, uh, Paul gives an example of mercy. And he says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Now that's a merciful act. Anybody who's bestowing their goods to feed the poor is someone who's engaging in an act of mercy. And then, though I give my body be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now you see that word uh, bestow there. It's a very interesting little Greek word. It pictures a mother lovingly placing morsels of food in the mouth of her young. So we've all seen animals do that. And we've even seen human mothers do that. You know, if a child is unwell or you have a very small child and the infant is, you know, not eating right, they're not eating their dinner up, well, the mother will lovingly spoon feed the child. She will see that the child gets the nutrition that he or she needs. And so this word means to feed in morsels, to dole out as is necessary to the need of the hour. And that's how the merciful act, particularly with concern for the poor and needy. They give people what they need, when they need it, to the degree that they need it. And this gift, and this is the point I want to make and why I bring you to this chapter, this gift is rooted in Christian love. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. And uh, as an example of love, Paul lays before us this act of mercy. Now go with me to the Gospel of John chapter 13. John focused upon love, writing about love more than any other Gospel writer or any other apostle. And he had a need to develop deep friendships in which there was evident mutual commitment. And of course, in that respect, he formed a very close relationship with the Lord Jesus. He also developed a close relationship with the Apostle Peter. And uh, in his gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, John chapter 13, verse 23, it says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. If you go to chapter 19 and verse 26, likewise, he uses a similar phrase. He says in verse 26, when Jesus, and this is at the cross, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. Now we think about the resurrection morning, chapter 20 and verse 2. It says, Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they've laid him. You see how he references himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now here's my question. Did Jesus love the other disciples? For sure he did. Wasn't Peter someone whom Jesus loved? Wasn't Nathaniel a disciple whom Jesus loved? You know, wasn't Thomas a disciple whom Jesus loved? Wasn't, you know, the other, weren't the others loved? Andrew, the, Philip, the others, weren't they also loved by the Lord? They were. Uh, but here's the thing. John, because he has this focus upon love, values the love of Christ in a very deep way. And he develops a very close relationship with the Lord Jesus in such a way that he uh, focuses his love upon him personally and calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, John has this surprising tendency then that I mentioned earlier to react very harshly when he senses that 
Someone is attacking one of his intimate friends. Look in the Gospel of Luke now, chapter 9. And we see a different shade to John. A different aspect to his character. Luke chapter 9 and verse 54. Luke chapter 9 and verse 54. Now, in this particular passage, the Lord has sent his disciples uh, into a village. They come into a village of the Samaritans. Uh, but he himself has set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's determined to go to Jerusalem. And uh, verse 52 tells us that uh, he sent messengers before his face. They went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Remember, there was this animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so the Samaritans wouldn't accept him. They wouldn't receive him. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, when they saw that the Lord had been rejected, they said, you've got to love this, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? (laughs) Think about what they're saying here. Lord, you know, just, just let us call down, let us burn them up. Can you imagine saying that? A thing as extreme. Is that because somebody rejects Christ? It's like it's like wishing somebody to go to hell. You know, you know, you, I, I, I have no interest in you. You just you just carry on your way. You deserve everything that you've got coming to you. And that was that was John's attitude. And, and you know, he's he asks the Lord to call down fire from heaven so as to consume these Samaritans who rejected Christ. In other words, he took the rejection personally. They weren't rejecting him. It wasn't his argument. They were rejecting the Lord. Remember, uh, you know, what the Lord said to Samuel whenever uh, they were electing Saul as the, as, the, as the king. He says, that you know, they've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. And so it is in this instance. These Samaritans weren't rejecting the disciples. They were rejecting Christ. But John takes it so personally that he wants to avenge uh, the Lord upon them, and, and you know, perhaps more than others, he needed to learn the truth of his own of his own gospel. When he when he wrote, wrote in John fifteen eighteen, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. But sometimes we do take things personally, don't we? You know, I remember doing door to door one time, and I knocked. We knocked this door. I was just a young Christian. I was with a, a, a young man who was a few years older than me, probably four or five years older than me, but he was the lead uh, person in this, in this evangelism effort, and he was knocking the doors, and I was the silent partner. I just stood there with the tracks and prayed while he witnessed. And so he knocked this door one time, and uh, this person came out, and he introduced himself, and he'd hardly got two words out of his mouth, and the person slammed the door in his face. I mean, really slammed it hard. And... Uh, you know, that happened from time to time. We turned around, and we walked a few steps toward the street, and then all of a sudden, he turned around, and he flung open the letterbox, and he screamed down the hall, All right, be like that then! <laughs> he took it personally. And you can't afford to do that when you're a witness. You can't afford to take it personally when you're rejected. But that's where John was. He felt very sore about the rejection of the Lord. John also had a greater concern over spiritual joy or distress 
than he did over physical concerns. So if you read his epistles, you find an emphasis on uh, themes such as joy, confidence, fellowship, hope, uh, fear, torment. Uh, Look with me in 1 John chapter 1. I want you to see this in 1 John chapter 1. These are the terms that keep coming up again and again in his epistles. In uh, 1 John chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4, He says, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that that ye also may have fellowship with us. That's the nature of a merciful person. They want you to have fellowship with them. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you. Notice that your joy may be full. He wants people to experience the joy that he knows. Um, If you look in chapter uh, 3, of, of the same book and uh, verse 2 beloved now are we the sons of God it doth not yet appear what we shall be but we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure he wants the people to have the joy of Christ he wants them to have the hope of Christ if you go to chapter 4 and verse 18 he wants them to live lives that are free uh, from the domination of fear he says there is no fear in love but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment he that feareth is not made perfect in love and again if you turn to chapter 5 verse 13 and 14 these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe in the name of the Son of God and this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will he heareth us so when he's dealing with people he wants them to have joy he wants them to have peace he wants them to have hope he wants them to have confidence he wants them to be in fellowship he wants them to enjoy their Christian life to the fullness now John's understanding nature you know his loving spirit and his evident compassion made it easier for others to put their confidence in him and to confide in him and there's a lovely instance of this at the uh, at the last supper if you go back to John chapter 13 and we'll read down where we began in verse 23 down to verse 26 and I love this little this little passage Uh, John chapter 13, verse 23. It says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, you've got to to understand this passage. You have to understand the layout of the table. Okay, Um, They're not sitting at a table, a dinner table, like you and I sit at. All right, where everybody's sitting on an upright chair and, you know, we're, we're just around a rectangle. Um, they sat on a bench seat that was that was went round in a in a horseshoe type shape, okay. And there was a packing order at that uh, at that uh, particular meal, whereby the host would have been the second person uh, sitting in, and then uh, the primary guest would be sitting next to him. The third important guest would be on the other side of him, and then it went all the way down to the bottom. And the person who was the least Uh, I don't want to say the least welcome guest, but the least important guest sat at the very end. So to understand the structure of this meal, uh, we know that John was sitting uh, uh, at Jesus' side. Okay, So he has the place 
of the, uh, he has a place of honor, and he's leaning on Jesus' bosom. And again, there's nothing, there's nothing untoward in that. You know, people read these things with Western eyes, and they get the idea here that this, there was something inappropriate in, in the body language here. That's not the case at all. Whereas we, we eat sitting upright, people in Bible times leaned to eat. They leaned down to eat. So when he was leaning on Jesus' breast, that was normal. Everybody was leaning on somebody's breast all the way around the table. And that's how they ate. Okay? Now, when you get to the bottom of the table in this instance, you've got the Lord that's at the head of the table. And you've got John. And you've got Judas. And then you've got all the other disciples all the way around till you get to Peter. Peter's at the bottom of the table. All right? Uh, And that's why, you know, Peter's job was to wash the disciples' feet. That was the person who was at the bottom of the table. That was their their customary responsibility, was to wash the feet of all the other guests. Which, you know, you, you remember the story, the Lord takes up a basin. He begins to wash their feet, and he gets to Peter. And how do you think Peter's feeling? Having not washed people's feet. He's a little embarrassed, isn't he? Uh, when you think about it, you know, why didn't he wash their feet? I'll tell you why. Because he's probably looking across the table at where Judas is sitting. And he's thinking, he's got my seat. <laughs> I should be sitting there. What's he doing sitting there? Me, John and I, we're in the inner circle. It's Peter, James, and John. So there's John, and there's James, and here's Judas. I should be there. I should be sitting there. If he thinks for one minute I'm going to wash his feet, think again. And the Lord humbles himself, and he comes around, he washes all of their feet. And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, you're not washing my feet. And that's because he's embarrassed. He's being put to shame by the actions of Christ. So Peter is sitting opposite the Apostle John. He's sitting on the other side of the room, if you like, and they're looking at each other, eye to eye. Now, I told you all of that. It's a rather lengthy explanation just to get to a particular point. Let's go to the, the, the passage again. So now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Now what had Jesus said? Well, if you go back a page or two, he told them that one of you shall betray me. He drops this bombshell into the meal table. One of you is going to betray me. So Peter wants to know who it is. Who is going to betray the Lord? So he therefore beckoned to him, beckoned to John, that he should ask who it should be of whom he speak. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So here's the deal. Peter doesn't ask the Lord. You know, the Lord says, One of you is going to betray me. Somebody's going to do the dirt in this room. And Peter doesn't say, you know, Lord, well, tell us who it is. He beckons to John. And, you know, I, I think there's, there was a little bit of, you know, when, when, when you've got friends and you can sort of make an eye contact and you can speak without saying anything. I think that's what's going on there. And I think uh, Peter's going, ask him, ask him. <laughs> you know, ask him who it is. And so the Lord, or so John asks him. But the point is that Peter entrusted John. You know, he was, he was, he was, he was, uh, 
Peter's confidant. He, he, he knew that John would take him seriously, that John would uh, be interested enough in him and caring enough in him uh, to raise his concerns with Christ. And so we see that a person who's merciful will have others readily confide in them and bring their concerns uh, to them. Now, John had the need of uh, the merciful to measure acceptance by physical closeness uh, and by quality time together. And again, we see that in this passage. Notice how he secured the place closest to the Savior, to the right uh, of the Savior uh, at the Last Supper there. He was leaning on Jesus' bosom. We read later on that, verse 26, that Jesus gave the sap a piece of bread. Remember, they used bread to scoop up their food. They didn't use knives and forks like we do. They used bread to scoop up their food. And so the Lord scooped up his food and he handed it to Judas. So Judas was on his left hand. John was on his right hand. And so John would have really valued and coveted that place because he wanted to have a closeness with Christ. Look in Mark chapter 10. This might in part uh, explain the request that he makes in Mark chapter 10 and verse 35 through 37. And again, it's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, the sons of thunder as they, as they became known. James and John, verse 35, the sons of Zebedee came unto him saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? And they said unto him, Grant to us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. And so again, you know, they may, it, it seems that perhaps... As, as, as a partial motivation for that request, John wanted this closeness with Christ. And he said, you know, I've told you before that my wife said that when, when we pass away, she, she wants the Lord to give her a mansion next door to me, okay? Um, anyway, we'll see how that goes. But uh, I'm not going to get myself in trouble this week. I got myself in terrible trouble last week. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, in all, in all earnestness, that's, you know, she desires that. She wants us to be, continue to be close together in eternity. And so it is with John and Jesus. He says, Lord, I want to sit in your right hand. I don't want to be just one of the number. I don't want to be one of the crowd. I want, to, I want to be sitting right beside you. You're my friend and I'm your friend. And we should be together and that's how it is. And, and of course the Lord doesn't grant that request. But nevertheless, that was his desire. Now John had a tendency sometimes to... Uh, avoid decisions uh, and firmness unless they would eliminate greater hurts. And essentially, John was a follower. You know, when, when you see Peter and John together, it's mostly Peter who's taken the lead. And uh, you see this in, in Acts chapter 4. Let's turn there for a moment. Acts chapter 4. You know, John was a follower until it came to denying Jesus. And then he was bold and he was decisive. He wasn't prepared to uh, surrender his convictions at the expense of Christ. And Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 uh, speaks of when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled that they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now down to uh, verse, uh, verse 18, or 19, sorry. They're told not to teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answering said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen 
and heard. So, you know, here he is. He's been very decisive, very determined uh, to follow the Lord. And typically of those with the mercy gift, John favored Peter. Peter has a prophetic element to him. Uh, he's, a, you know, we often talk about Peter as being the disciple who opens his mouth and inserts his feet. He says what he thinks. And he doesn't care where it lands. Uh, he's this prophetic element to him. Uh, but John spent more time with Peter than any of the other disciples. If you look in the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, and we've talked about how that the merciful attract the opposite, and John and Peter are opposites in many ways. Uh, John is, is far more gentle, very, very much more behind the door than Peter in many respects. But you see them together constantly. And uh, here comes the uh, the, the time of the Passover, the, uh, the, the Last Supper, and he says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, verse 7, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that, you may, that we may eat. In Acts chapter 3, in verse 1, again you see this coupling of Peter and John. Uh, Peter and John uh, appreciate each other for the diversity of their gifts. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. At chapter 4 and verse 13, uh, again, now when they saw, we just read this, the boldness of Peter and John. Uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 14. Uh, now when the d- apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. And there's no question, John would have been attracted to Peter's outspoken prophetic gift and character, as well as his loyalty and his commitment as a friend. Now, very quickly, how is the gift of mercy abused or misused? You know, it's hard to imagine how you could misuse a gift like mercy. You know, can you overdo it? Can you be too merciful? Uh, you know, can, how can mercy go awry? Uh, but the merciful person is every bit as much in danger as of abusing their gift or misusing their gift as anyone else. Uh, so because of their sensitivities and their emotional depth, merciful people uh, may prove difficult within the wider fellowship. Uh, you know, they, they, if they want this closeness all the time with people, that doesn't always happen with everybody. You know, there are other people and they don't want that. They, they are just happy to keep themselves to themselves and and to be left be and to get on with things. A merciful person doesn't always get that. Um, Their failure to confront others or be firm may appear as weakness or indecision. Uh, Very often this indecision and inability to be firm when needed may cause more problems and offense. So by not wanting to offend people, people, merciful people run the risk of actually seriously offending people. So they may be viewed as sympathetic Uh, with those who are brazenly violating God's word and giving such people encouragement and succor. And then they they sometimes take up the offenses of others. Because they take up the offense of their friends, so personally, merciful people may take up the offense and they get embroiled in a dispute that is really none of their their business. So they they meddle sometimes in in affairs that are not theirs. You know, in the Bible, the book of Proverbs says a person who does that is like a man who takes a dog by the ears. Say, what what does that mean? I don't recommend you do this. But if you suddenly grab a dog by the ears, you're going to get your nose snapped off, aren't you? And that's what happens with the merciful person. They stick their nose in. You know, it's not their argument. It's not their dispute. It's not their uh, conflict. But they don't appreciate the fact that their friend is being attacked. And so they'll just jump right in there. 
and they're naked, they're, 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 they're nose snapped, and they're uh, causing the creating greater difficulties rather than actually helping the problem. Um, sensitivity to the spirit and the feelings of others may cause some to feel that the merciful parent is, person is imbalanced, uh, that they're guided more by their heart than by logic, by reason. Uh, here's a very real danger. A merciful, person attraction, a merciful person's attraction to and understanding of those in distress may be interpreted as inappropriate interest, which is not their prime factor at all. So this may create an improper emotional attachment. Instead of a person becoming, you know, looking to the Lord for their problems, they can look to the merciful person as being a substitute for the Lord, and that's a big problem. Uh, also, you know, there's the danger of the, of the merciful person's um, motives and actions being misread and then being tempted into and drawn into immoral relationships um, through unguarded counseling sessions. So sometimes, you know, a merciful person can be unwise. And I've, I've seen this uh, over the years uh, with some pastors uh, who very unwisely uh, went one-on-one in counseling troubled women. Um, and that's a mistake. That's a, that's a pastoral mistake, Okay. Um, a pastor, if he's dealing with a troubled woman, if he's smart, if he's wise, he'll have his wife with him. Uh, or if he can't get his wife, he'll have someone else from the fellowship with him. Um, but sometimes pastors have found themselves in situations where this woman is pouring out her soul to the pastor, and he's a very kindly ear, and he's listening, and of course he's sympathetic, and he's trying to be a, an encouragement to her, and, and she misreads that, and an emotional attachment builds, and you know the potential for an immoral relationship is created. And that's a danger for people who have this gift. And then another thing they may do is they may become possessive. They can, they can be people who engage in possessive friendships. So, you know, they have this need of commitment and closeness and friendship. So that may transfer into a possessive spirit where they don't appreciate other people muscling in on their friendship. And it creates cliques. Uh, and groups you know around that person and that's not right either so mercy when it's properly applied is a wonderful tremendous gift in that it expresses God's love for those who are hurting in our midst and I wonder is mercy your gift you know maybe you're thinking that was ask me that's who I am that's what I'm like you know could it be that you're a sensitive soul do you find a need in your life for uh, close, committed people? Are you a fierce defender of your friends, even to a fault sometimes? Uh, you know, maybe you possess this very gift. So, so here we have it. In Romans chapter 12, seven spiritual gifts, one of which you primarily possess, that is a blessing from God and is given to you as a benefit to his church. And so I said, to you, well, what now? So you've heard, you've heard all of these gifts presented to you, Okay. And you might be saying, well, I'm none the wiser. <laughs> I haven't a clue. Which gift is mine? And maybe I have them all. <laughs> or none. <laughs> you certainly have one. Okay? And you probably have more uh, than one. Uh, but it, maybe you're here at this point in the, in the series. We've got to the end of the series. And you're saying, I don't know. Or maybe you find something in uh, each of the gifts, you know, this, that... that, that described you in part, and you're kind of like a window shopper. You know, a window shopper always looks but never buys. Isn't that right? 
And maybe you've been like that. You've looked at all seven gifts and you said, well, I like, I like something in each of them, but I'm not quite sure which one is me. Maybe you were looking for the gift you would like to have rather than seeking to recognize the gift that you actually possess. Do you hear what I said? Sometimes we look for the gift that we would like to have. That's what I would like to be rather than that's actually who I am and what I have, what I possess. So maybe now would be a good time to ask someone close to you, but what do you think my gift is? You know, if somebody knows you quite well, your husband, your wife, somebody in church is a, is a closer personal friend, and what do you think my gift is? And be ready for the answer. It might not be the gift that you're thinking, because you may have your eyes on one that you fancy, but they may see something else in you that you haven't recognized or have been unwilling to recognize. So speak with somebody and ask, well, what do you think? And, and whatever you do, however long it takes, here's what I say, don't settle for nothingness. Don't say, I don't have a spiritual gift. Because you do. Everybody has one. Now, maybe you've honed it down to two gifts. And bear in mind that some gifts have similar characteristics, but for different reasons. For example, those who have the gift of servanthood uh, have, have, uh, have similar uh, characteristics to those with the gift of mercy and that they're sensitive to the needs of others. Servants want to engage in physical need, helping physical need, uh, whereas the uh, merciful is more concerned about spiritual, emotional, and mental uh, needs. An exhorter encourages people to reach their full potential and to, to become the maturity as believers. Whereas an administrator, you know, he, he also wants people to reach their full potential, but for a different reason, because he wants uh, to complete a particular object. It's all, a, it's all about your motivation. What motivates you? What brings you the greatest sense of joy? What brings you the greatest sense of purpose and satisfaction? You know, which gift would you engage in that you think, you know, you know what, when I, when I do that, when I behave that way, when I act in that, in that light, it just thrills me. I love to be a part of that. I'm so glad to, to be able to you know, encourage that person or teach that truth or, or give that gift or whatever it is. And also distinguish between characteristics you've acquired as you exercise the gift. For example, uh, in teaching, uh, you, know, you may have learned to study and, and to read in preparation, but that, you know, that that is not maybe the primary drive of your spiritual instincts. Where are you most at home? In other words, you, know, you may have learned and honed the ability to study and to prepare for a Sunday school lesson, but it's not your gift. It's not the thing that drives you. Now, some, do, no doubt, some of you no doubt have figured it out. You don't have to tell me about it, okay? I'm not going to ask you on the way out what's your spiritual gift. You're all very relieved about that. I'm not going to ask you on the way out what's your spiritual gift. You don't have to tell me about it. But now you know what the gifts are, what do you do? Well, here's what you do. If you know what your gift is, just do it. Just do it. Put, the, put your gift to good use. Benefit the whole body of Christ. Bless those around you. And please the, glorify the Lord with your talent. And that, my friends, is how we discover, hopefully, our spiritual gifts. All right, we'll leave it there for this evening. Lord willing, next Wednesday I'll begin a brand new series, a book study. Uh, we're going to look at Paul's eschatological epistles. If you're wondering what that big word means, it means end time. Uh, we're going to look at 1 and 2 Thessalonians, which are two, two books that are often overlooked.
when we talk about prophetic things. Very often we're going into Daniel, we're going into Revelation, but actually Paul has a lot to say about the end times, and there's a lot of practical Christian advice in those books also uh, for the church. And uh, we're going to begin, Lord willing, with an introduction to 1 and 2 Thessalonians uh, next Wednesday evening. And then the week after that, Pastor Darren will be here. And, and then we'll get into the book proper. All right? So that's where we're going.